Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The streets of Hong Kong sound awfully familiar. It sounds a lot like last June, when massive protests erupted in Hong Kong. They were big, they involved millions of people, they were sometimes very violent. After hours of chanting and song, police moved in to disperse the crowds. Barriers torn down, rubber bullets and tear gas fired into the chaos. Umbrellas and plastic bottles their only defense. Last year, the protests were driven by an extradition bill um, that would essentially allow criminals to be extradited over to mainland China from Hong Kong. The law would allow suspects to be sent to mainland China to face trial. Critics of the bill fear this could lead to arbitrary detention and unfair trials. Last year's protests never really ended. They only started petering out uh, during the onset of coronavirus, when obviously people were afraid to gather en masse and kind of stayed at home. But two things have changed. One... Coronavirus here is sort of no longer a major concern. There have been no local cases uh, in, in a few weeks now. And two... Beijing has taken the opportunity of the world being distracted to essentially make huge moves here and, and rewrite the rules of Hong Kong. China has drafted a new sweeping national security law. It will criminalize uh, foreign interference, successionism, uh, subversion against the state, and all of these things are extremely broad. The law is the most dramatic in a series of attempts to erode Hong Kong's autonomy in recent years. In a statement, Secretary Mike Pompeo said that no reasonable person can assert today that Hong Kong maintains a high degree of autonomy from China, given the facts on the ground. This certification means the U.S. could revoke its special trade relationship with Hong Kong, which would hurt the economies of both Hong Kong and China. And now, once again, the streets of Hong Kong are filled with protesters. You know, Hong Kong is back to normal in many ways. Restaurants are open, bars are open, and protests are back, and tear gas is back on the street, right? That's our normal. Shibani Matani, you're the Hong Kong bureau chief for The Washington Post, and you were at the protest this weekend. What was it like out there? News of the new national security law broke kind of late last week. We will stop violence and restore order, Chairman Wang Yang announced, suggesting the autonomy Hong Kong enjoys under one country, two systems was no longer on the table. And already immediately we saw calls to, to protest. 
I mean, it only took me two interviews to find someone on the streets who had already been arrested before as part of last year's movement. And, uh, you know, once you obviously get arrested, uh, you know, the next time that happens to you again, you won't get bail and, you know, you, you'll be in a detention center somewhere. And when I was uh, on the, the subway, I saw like thousands and thousands of people. And then when I got out, like the streets were all choked again. You couldn't move. Uh, there were people chanting the same slogans as last year, but some different ones too. Some were shouting, Hong Kong independence, the only way out. really actually taken aback because uh, it, it does seem to me that no matter what and no matter how hopeless the situation seems, like Hong Kong people still want to fight back. They still want to try to protect um, their, their, their rights and freedoms. Uh, and it was only 20 minutes into the march that the police uh, fired tear gas and tried to break it up. And even before the protest or rally start, more than 100 uh, police with the uh, rubber bullets and the guns uh, already used those equipment of the crackdown and to target the dissident in Hong Kong. There were scenes of chaos really reminiscent of last year. Last year, actually, um, especially in the beginning, they let these marches go on for hours and hours before they did make moves to, to clear it. So the, the, the pace was quite stunningly fast this time of them trying to break it up and, and get people off the streets. You mentioned you spoke to protesters. I mean, did anything stand out from some of those conversations? For sure, uh, their resolve and their insistence that they will literally die fighting um, remains the same. I think these protesters, a lot of them, like I said, are very young, but there's also an older generation that felt like they didn't do enough in 1997. They didn't do enough when Hong Kong was handed over back to China from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, they felt like they let down uh, the younger generation and they, they kind of let Hong Kong slowly get subsumed into China, that they let its freedom slowly you know, get eroded. And they're very emotional about that and they really want to come out and try to protect the future of the, young gen- the younger generation. They basically feel like this is their last chance to fight back, to kind of stand up for what they believe Hong Kong should be. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, they keep repeating, we, we just want Hong Kong to be left alone. We just want Hong Kong to remain Hong Kong. We just want the freedoms we've always enjoyed. We just want the right to protest. And, you know, we, we, we want our children to have the same. It all just kind of feels like deja vu. I mean, is it basically China just going one step further, trying to officially bring Hong Kong into the fold? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very much uh, Beijing's response to the protests and the protest movement of last year. Uh, I think they have grown intolerant with Hong Kong. I think they've decided, you know, enough is enough. Um, we have to find some way to basically, you know, crush uh, this this dissenting, uh, you know, territory that's right on our on our border. Right. Um, I think that they see this uh, protest movement not something you know that, that that's organic or something that's driven by Hong Kong, but a product of U.S interference, foreign interference, uh, that, that, that there are rabble rousers, people who want independence for Hong Kong, uh, who are trying to essentially, you know, upend uh, their, their, their national security. So I think they fought back very strongly with this. And the most remarkable thing here is that instead of going through Hong Kong's legislature, instead of going through Hong Kong's uh, processes, they've decided to impose this essentially uh, unilaterally um, in Beijing. That's been the thing that's really shocked many. If China can just do something drastic like this unilaterally, why didn't they do it last year? Why did they start with the extradition bill? This is the riskiest move that Beijing could take. It is, it is certainly something that I think stunned all of us because the, the risk level is so high. I mean, presumably the economic impact and the political and, and geopolitical sort of 
just consequences, right, of Hong Kong losing its special status with the U.S. would be so far-reaching. And I don't think anyone could have imagined um, that Hong Kong would we would even be discussing this, right? The end of Hong Kong's status as a global financial hub and, you know, the, the, the end of the U.S.-Hong Kong trade relationship. Uh, I think they severely underestimated what the response would be, right? I think they didn't think millions of people would come up to the streets. I think they didn't think that it would, you know, uh, give birth to a whole new generation of activists um, that, that, you know, they, they would see uh, universities literally become, you know, Molotov cocktail factories and so on and so forth, right? So um, I think... I I think the mistakes of last year have sort of uh, prompted them to take this extremely bold and extremely risky move um, without really thinking about the international consequences. And the protests last year, they were at least partially successful in that Hong Kong did end up withdrawing the extradition bill. Is there any chance that these protests have a similar effect? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, They were, but now it looks like China doesn't even need the extradition bill. They brought their law into into Hong Kong, right? So they 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 don't even need to extradite you there. They can just use their own laws here in, in Hong Kong. Beijing has sort of lost trust with Hong Kong's government and authorities. They know that they totally mishandled the crisis last year. And instead of responding in a way that made people stop protesting and, and, you know, quell the anger on the streets, it seemed like at every turn they inflamed the situation and made it worse. So instead, I think what they're doing now is totally bypassing Hong Kong and their allies here even to just impose their will de facto from Beijing. And I think that will be something that will be much, much harder to fight back against. Up next, the global consequences of China's new national security law. Support for Che Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Shabani, this new national security law, it's been unveiled, but it hasn't taken effect yet. 
So how much do we actually know about what's in it? So the specific details of the law are not actually public yet, and uh, everyone's been trying to get more information on what exactly it means and and the implications. But it is a national security law that will uh, seek to criminalize uh, a number of key things. Uh, Successionist behavior, um, which is anybody seeking independence for Hong Kong, uh, subversion uh, of of the the, the state, um, any, any threats to national security, extremely broadly worded, and foreign interference. Um, which is the thing that I think perhaps most concerning for, you know, diplomats, journalists, and others operating here. What actually counts as foreign interference? I mean, we don't have too many details, but could you as a journalist be punished for interviewing someone that the government doesn't approve of? Right, no one knows. And 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 I think that that is the concern, right? So yeah, I'm on the board here of the Foreign Correspondents Club. A few years ago, uh, we hosted a Hong Kong independence activist and Victor Mallet, who was the Financial Times Asia editor at the time, who was uh, sort of the, the, the moderator of that, um, got his visa extension denied and uh, had to leave Hong Kong very hastily. And that was before all these laws were in place, right? So now, now with those laws in place, does it mean that if we publish quotes from say, an independence activist or a protester in the street who's advocating for independence or something that, uh, you know, Beijing disapproves of, or if we ourselves are considered the ones who are interfering and we are we are foreign journalists, like, the, the implications are so sweeping and huge and broad, and I, I don't think any of us have really sort of figured it out yet. The, the timing of this new law can't be a coincidence, right? Is, is China using this pandemic as an opportunity to pass this new law? Yeah, I think I think that's um, that's definitely what we're seeing, not just in Hong Kong but across the region. Um, in the past few months, China has made various moves to assert itself uh, in the South China Sea, uh, you know, with Vietnam, Taiwan, and you know, we're seeing it now here in Hong Kong too. I think, you know, Xi Jinping considers his handling of the pandemic a, a win. The CCP feels very emboldened right now, and and they see the U.S. as weakened, uh, and in that environment, they feel like they can push, you know, for things uh, and uh, hopefully have have. No no one respond. But I think Xi Jinping wants to call the U.S.'s bluff. I mean, he wants to see if, if they'll really do it and they'll really push back that strongly. I don't think that the fate of Hong Kong will necessarily be defined by the protest, but I think it will definitely be defined in large part by the reaction of the international community, especially the United States. And, you know, Secretary Pompeo reacted today saying that Hong Kong no longer warrants the same kind of special treatment it once had from the U.S. Do you think that could have any effect on China? It's hard to say definitively just because the U.S., China, Cold War here, the new Cold War has like taken up uh, so much bandwidth in, in Washington. And already like there's been such a huge push for some of these measures, right? The sanctions, the rethinking of, you know, Hong Kong special status and everything else. Um, and I think the, 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 the protest environment adds more of an unknown, right? Because the more people protest in the streets, the more violence there is, the more images of barricades and tear gas and police uh, having projectiles thrown at them and stuff, the more Beijing will say, you see, this is exactly why we need this national security law. Uh, and then it, it just sort of, sort of spirals downwards, right? So I think everyone's kind of predicting uh, a very, very difficult summer over here in Hong Kong. Just how risky is this for China? Could the whole thing fail? Yeah. I mean, already uh, China's economy is hurting um, because of the impact of COVID. And there is also separately a move in Washington to uh, kind of delist Chinese companies, uh, you know, from the stock exchange, right? So they need Hong Kong, right? They need Hong Kong's 
you know, capital. They need Hong Kong uh, as the international hub of finance and trade that it's always been, right? And um, I don't know how quickly that that will end or whether that will happen in stages or, or, or it's very hard to, to kind of see what, what the future will be there. But China certainly benefits a lot from Hong Kong. And so if that no longer is the case, um, economically, it could have huge, huge impacts, I think. But I think they're just making the calculation now that Hong Kong protesters are too much like, you know, Xinjiang and, and Tibet, they're like a restive region that needs to be kept under control. And I think maybe that's a bigger calculation for them right now than the economic factors. Yeah, with Tibet and Xinjiang, I mean, these aren't exactly economic powerhouses. If China's able to do something like this with an economic powerhouse like Hong Kong, what does that mean for China's standing in the world order? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. I mean, the Hong Kong protesters will tell you, you know, first Hong Kong, then the world, right? They'll say, if they can do this to us, you're going to be next. Um, we're like Berlin 1989, like watch us to see which way the world's going to go. They've always framed their struggle that way. They've always seen themselves as between a sort of liberal, democratic order that they're trying to uphold and protect and this regime that wants to, to kind of crush them. So that's what they would say, I guess, that it would be us first and then and then the rest of the world. Shabani Matani is the Hong Kong bureau chief for The Washington Post. I'm Noam Hassenfeld, filling in for Sean Ramos for him. This is Today Explained. 